Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. This morning we're looking at verses 22 through 24. You can find it on page 978 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. Next week we get to move on to page 979. That's pretty exciting. Uh, Yeah. Well, uh, guys, brace yourself, okay? Because I am about to say the most offensive, the most belligerent S word in the American vocabulary. Are you ready for it? Submission. And while I'm at it, I'm just going to throw out the most vulgar A word in the American vocabulary, authority. We in our culture, in this me-centered culture that we live in, we hate these words. They are vulgar and offensive to us. We can't stand them. We don't want to hear them. I mean, how dare you get up and you say those blasphemous, those offensive words of submission and authority? But let me ask you something. Is this the way that God views these words? Now, over the course of the next few sermons... I'm going to ask us to do something that is very difficult, very challenging to us, but it is something that God calls us all to. See, whether we admit it or not, we view everything. We view our lives, we view the Bible, we view our relationships, we view our workplaces, we view all things through the lens of our me-centered, self-seeking culture. By nature, what we do. We are immersed in this me-first society. And what I'm asking, and what God is commanding us, is that we take off these broken beer bottle lenses of our culture that promotes self-glorification and self-pleasing entitlement, that preaches autonomy and self-reliance and permissiveness and promiscuity, that insists upon one's own desires and one's own passions, that waves the banner of feminism and confusion over gender and the glorification of sex and the redefinition of marriage, I'm asking us to take off those me-first lenses and to view the world, to view authority structures, to view our relationships, and to view even our lives through the lens of God's Word. Let's not deceive ourselves for a moment. This is much, much more difficult than we think it is. You see, if we fail to take off those broken beer bottle lenses of our culture, when we look at these next few passages in Ephesians 5.22 through 6.9, all we will see is fear or anxiety or sadness or despair. We will view them with hatred, anger, or disdain. We will look at these passages like the world does, and we will see only injustice or oppression. But to view this, these passages, to view this text through the lens of God's word, to view it through God's eyes, we see glory. We see the gospel. Now, here's the irony of it all. No matter which view you take, when you come to this passage, no matter which lens you happen to be looking through, you are submitting yourself to some way of viewing this text. You are not autonomous. You are not an independent thinker. You are not 
just oblivious or just separate from the culture that you live in. And so when you come to this text, you are submitting yourself either to looking at this text the way the world does with disdain and hatred, or you submit yourself to looking at this text through the eyes of God. But either way, you are submitting yourself to some view of this text, okay? And that's important to understand. And I hope and pray that this morning you will see the gospel. We are about to get as real as we can possibly get. How the gospel affects and transforms our homes, our very households, the relationships that are nearest and dearest to us, relationships with our spouses, relationships with our parents or with children, our relationships with our employers or with our employees. It's going to be challenging and it's going to be uncomfortable for us all. You see, our personal relationship with Jesus Christ is not just between me and Jesus. When we respond to the gospel in repentance and faith, it transforms everything. It's not just vertical. You have to understand that growth in holiness and growth in Christ is not just about me and Christ in isolation to everyone and everything else, but actually my relationship to Christ changes every relationship that I have. All of those relationships that are most dear to me, that are most intimate to me, those relationships where I spend the most time, it transforms them all. It affects them all. It changes them all. And every relationship that you have is meant to bring glory to Christ. It's about Him. It's meant to reflect who He is and what He has done for us. And the first relationship in this passage that we come to is the relationship of wives to husbands. Now, before I read the text, just let me say a word to those of you who are not wives. You're not married. You're not even a woman. Right? This text still has much to say to you. Husbands, this is a way to pray for and encourage your wives. Single women, this is what God calls you to if you are to be married. And so seek by his grace to live in light of that now. Single men, this text ought to help you to know a little bit about what to look for in a potential wife. And to the unmarried who may remain unmarried and to us all, this text has much to say about what it means to submit to Christ. We can learn much about God's intentional ordering and creation and his purposes for every aspect of our lives, every single relationship. We learn why it's important that the church submits to Christ in everything and why we are to be a part of that. And we learn how we might actually help and encourage our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are married or who are pursuing marriage. So this has a lot to do with you, no matter what stage of life you are in. This passage has much to say to us all. What does it mean for us to live for the glory of Christ? Well, for one, this passage teaches us that wives display the glory of Christ through faithful submission to their husbands. Wives display the glories of Christ through faithful submission to their husbands. So please read the text with me, Ephesians 5, 
22 through 24. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Wives display the glories of Christ through faithful submission to their husbands. And this text provides us with three reasons why wives should joyfully submit themselves to their husbands. And the first reason is simply this, to obey Christ. Now, our world sees this text as repulsive. But God commends joyful submission for wives as the means in which they serve the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has made them, the one who has redeemed them. You have to understand that it is no accident that you are where you are, that you are who you are, that you have relationships with who you have relationships, that you are married to whom you are married. God has purposed each and every life, each and every relationship that we might bring glory to God and we might enjoy him forever. And every aspect of our lives is a gift from the Lord intended for his glory and his good. And that is filled with hardships. That's filled with challenges and difficulties, but it's still the truth remains. It is for his glory and for your good. And that includes this call for wives to submit to your own husbands. Now, if we look at this passage in isolation, let's be honest, this seems like a downer, right? This seems oppressive. I, I, I don't like this. I mean, I feel uncomfortable with this. But let's remember the whole message of Ephesians, okay? This, this passage is not given to us in isolation. It's connected with a whole bunch else. And when we see it in light of the whole, then it takes on a whole different meaning. It has a richness and a beauty to it that we can't see if we look at it by itself. And so what happens in Ephesians is that it goes from general to specific, right? It starts out by proclaiming truths for all of those who are in Christ, universally, unilaterally. It doesn't mean who you are, but then as it moves forward, it gets really, really specific. Commands, instructions, encouragements are given for, for unique and particular people, for each one of us. It begins to look different as we move along. And so the first three chapters are devoted to telling us who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. I mean, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. God has already blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Well, like what? Well, the fact that he chose us, the fact that he adopted us, the fact that he loved us, the fact that he forgave us, the fact that he made his will known to us, that he's lavished his grace upon us, the fact that that we are forgiven of all our sins, the fact that he's given us his Holy Spirit and that he has guaranteed this eternal inheritance that is ours, unfading, imperishable. It's always going to be ours. I mean, as you go through chapter one, you just see over and over again all that God has done for us in Christ unilaterally. It's beautiful. And he reminds us in in the end of chapter one that Christ is exalted above all things, that he is above every name that is named, yours and mine, both in this age and also the one that is to come. 
And that God has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is exalted. Christ is reigning. Christ is over all, right? And the church is to submit to him. And here's the amazing thing, right? That as the church submits to Christ, the head, then they display the lordship of Christ for all the world to see. They, they are the fullness of him who fills all in all. They are living displays. As they submit themselves to Christ, they display his lordship for all the world to see. Chapter 2 continues, right? Not only were all of these blessings given us, but he reminds us of who we were, right? That we were all dead in our sin. That we were all enslaved to the world, the devil, and our own sinful flesh, that we were justly and rightly condemned under God's wrath. All right, we didn't deserve anything. You are not good enough to save yourself. You are dead. Dead is dead, and that's all that it means. But God, because he's rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, because of who he is, made us alive together with Christ. We've all been, that are in Christ, we've been made alive. We're new creations. We're actually together. We're God's workmanship, his masterpiece. Created in God, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's who we are together, right? All of us who are in Christ. It's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. We, and again, it's all under the submission of Christ. We, we display his lordship as we worship and follow him for what he has done in redeeming us, which we did not deserve. Through chapter 2, he unites us together as the body. He's made us one. And he's given us his revelations so that we might grow in maturity in Christ, that we might actually help one another to do that. And so when you get to chapter 4, He's now kind of giving ethical implications, and he's reminding us all that we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. What he's saying is, be who you now are in Christ. You are a new creation, and so live in that identity. And he has all of these implications to us, right? And as he continues to unfold it, though though that... that, uh, gospel call, the salvation in Christ as we've responded in repentance and faith to the gospel, the same call that unites us to, uh, to his body. It it's, it's, doesn't matter whether you're young or old, married, single, male, female, no matter color, race, bank account, none of that matters. We begin to see that, that as we move forward in that call, that it applies more and more acutely, more and more specifically to each and every life. And so when you get to chapter 4, verse 7, he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so what he's saying there is like, look, Christ has uniquely gifted each and every one of you. And it's not the same. Just like you don't share a life, you don't share a body, you all have different jobs, you have different neighbors, you have different families, you have different histories, you have different all that. So Christ also uniquely gifts each one of you for the good of building up the body so we might reach maturity in Christ. And in addition to that, depending on where you are, God has purposed for you to be a part of a local body as a local expression of Christ's church. And he has gifted to that church particular leaders, right? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
And so there, we're moving away from this general, I'm to submit to Christ, who is my Lord, right? To, and to God's word, to now, I'm to be a part of the church, and that church has leaders, and I'm to submit to them. Okay? You keep moving on. He puts us in these relationships together, and he does it as a means of helping us to identify areas of sin that remain in our lives so that we might put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to put on the new self that is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we, the church, are meant to help one another in that, to grow to maturity, to become like Christ. And we need the church to do that. I needed that this week. Right? I had to have two faithful brothers, Caleb and Kyle, press in on me in areas where I was blind to sin in my life this week. We need that. And as we walk through the end of chapter 4 and into the beginning of chapter 5, we're given many aspects of our relationship with each other which are, uh, in which we are to put off sin and to put on Christ. And so then we come to the, the passage that immediately precedes the one that we're in now, chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, where he calls us to walk in wisdom and to be filled with the Spirit. And in verse 21, he says the most surprising thing about what it means to be a Spirit-filled Christian. Shocking. Totally catch you off guard. He says the Spirit-filled Christians submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there again, we see submission to the body, submission to the church. In light of the fact that Jesus is their sovereign Lord and loving Savior, each member of the church gladly arranges themselves under the authority structures that Christ has providentially placed in their lives in order to honor Christ and to give Him glory. All Christians are called to gladly serve and love and subject themselves both corporately and individually to the various authorities in their lives. And so it's now that we come to chapter 5, verse 22 through 6-9. And what Paul is doing here is sort of giving us almost a parenthetic statement. He wants to make sure it's like, okay, yeah, you're submitting to one another. You're submitting to Christ. You're submitting to the leaders in the church. You're submitting to the word of God. He doesn't add it here, but he, in other places he says you're submitting to governing authorities. But also there are particular ways in which you, depending on who you are, depending on your relationships, are to submit in particular ways. And so he says, wives to husband, children to parents, servants to masters. He's expounding upon that particular relationships and how they apply to verse 21. And so what we see him doing in this section is first giving a word to those who are called to submit, and then he's giving a word to those who are to faithfully lead, reminding them of the fact that they too are subject to Christ. Right? And so he goes, wives, children, servants, be subject, submit, husbands, parents, particularly fathers, masters. Remember, you lead in submission to Christ. And that's what he's doing there, okay? And so the only reason he addresses wives first is not because there's, there's a particularly bad crop of, of wives there in Ephesus. No, it's because he's working off of that word in verse 21, submit. It's the only reason. 
So he's about to give instruction to the husbands and so on and so forth. And so what I, the reason why I say all of that is, is so that you can see that God has a bigger picture in mind with regards to your salvation, and that includes submission in every capacity to one degree or another. It's not like anyone's free from the need to submit, okay? Husbands get to be tyrannical rulers and wives have to submit. No, that's not it. They all submit. You're all in submission to Christ. You're all subject to him. And, and hopefully that will ease the tension when we turn to look at the command in verse 22. None of us are free from it, okay? None of us are free from it. And so it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, I just said that no matter who we are, no matter what role we've been given, we are to submit. We are to arrange ourselves under the authority structures that God has providentially placed in our lives. It is no accident that you are who you are, where you are, when you are, and how you are. And to do so, to submit in whatever capacity that is, is to obey Christ. And to fail to do so is to disobey Christ. But to wives in particular, this command is given, not just here, but in 1 Corinthians 11, in Colossians chapter 3, in Titus chapter 2, and in 1 Peter chapter 3, that wives are to be subject to their own husbands. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, let me start out by saying what it doesn't mean, okay? I'm taking this from John Piper's This Momentary Marriage. Highly recommend it to you. We have all of our couples that go through premarital counseling read this book, so I commend it to you. But Piper says, submission doesn't mean that you agree with everything your husband says. You're not a mindless puppet. Submission doesn't mean leaving your brain at the wedding altar to do and act and say whatever he wants. That's important. Submission doesn't mean avoiding every effort to change or influence your husband. You are created to help him and to respectfully point him to Christ. And he is to live with you in an understanding way. And so he needs to hear from you. He has blind spots. Submitting doesn't mean putting the will of your husband before the will of Christ. You serve Christ first. Submitting doesn't mean that a wife gets her personal spiritual strength primarily through her husband. Just because he is your spiritual leader does not mean that he is your savior. Christ is. Submission doesn't mean that a wife is to act out of fear, cowering under an abusive tyrant. This passage in no way makes the husband the absolute authority as if he gets to dictate her every action or thought. So what is submission? Well, again, I think that Piper provides uh, us with a helpful definition, and I'm not the only one, all right? I, I just want you to know that I read tons this week, books piled up on my desk. I mean, it's a, it's a literal mess right now. I mean, tons and tons of books. I even read, you know, I read books written by, by author, like female authors, right? So I read uh, Excellent Wife by Martha Peace, right? I'm far more excellent as a wife now because of that, right? I, I read uh, Carolyn Mahaney's Feminine Appeal. Clearly, it did not work. Yeah. But nevertheless, 
Tons of these books that I read and even many commentaries pointed back to this definition that Piper gives. And so I think it's a really good one and it should be up here on the screen so you can read it along with me. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts, characterized by a disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It is a disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It is utilizing the mind, the gifts, the abilities that Christ has given her to help her husband as he seeks to lead their family. It's an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish in the relationship when you are passive and I have to make sure that the family works and I do not desire to do that. And so in dependence upon Christ, in order to honor Christ, she prayerfully and patiently and respectfully and voluntarily arranges herself under her husband because she desires to glorify Christ. Now, in addition to the command, there are also qualifications given in this verse, verse 22. First, this command is given in the middle voice. Right? It's, it's not in the passive voice, meaning it's meant to be voluntary. It's meant to encourage the wife to do that. Though God has given us this command, and he does call wives to submit, the emphasis is not, you are subject to your own husbands, so deal with it. The emphasis is, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Do you hear how different that sounds? It's meant to be voluntary. It's meant to be obedient to Christ. It's meant to come from the heart. In addition, and this is really important, the command is given to wives. It is not saying, men, make sure your wives are submissive. Men, that is not your job. I needed to be reminded of that this week as I looked at this text. It is not your job. Wives, this is your responsibility. This is on you. This is what it means to obey and serve Christ. That leads to a third qualification. It doesn't say women be subject to men or wives submit to all husbands. No, it says wife submit to your own husband. That's key. Yes, you are to submit to the leadership of your church and to one another, just as your husband is to do the same. You're to be subject to the governing authorities, according to Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. But in your home and throughout your daily lives, you are not called to submit to all men or to all husbands, but to your own husband. And this is big. Right? And, and I don't have time to get into it, but I don't think that the Bible prohibits women from leading in the workplace or in civil service, but for a wife to submit in the area of church and home. I can't unpack that right now. It takes wisdom, right? Don't read that unilaterally the wrong way, but still, 
He's speaking, God is speaking to the church and home. And fourth, and most importantly, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. One of the most practical, tangible, and visible ways that you can display your commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ is by submitting to your husbands. But you are to do so in a way that is fitting to the Lord, that is honoring to Him. That doesn't mean that you follow your husband into sin. You are to first follow Christ. But if your husband does want to lead you into sin, there is a way to honor Christ in your disobedience to your husband. Right? But just as your obedience to Christ is meant to be marked by a willing, joyful, and holy submission, wives are called to follow their husbands in the same manner, with the same disposition, with the same inclination. Now, I know that this can be hard. And I know that more often than not, or at least at times, husbands do not deserve for their wives to submit to them in this way. I know that. But this command to submit to your own husband as to the Lord is not ultimately to obey your husband. It is to obey Christ. An unwillingness to do so displays an unwillingness to follow Christ. And I want to just encourage you wives. Your call to submit to your own husbands is not dependent upon his merit. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Christian wives are called to submit even to unbelieving husbands. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, so they are being disobedient to God, they, your husbands, may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now this call to submit is based upon the wisdom, the goodness, the power, and the merit, not of your husband, but of Christ. You don't ultimately submit for your husbands. You do so for Jesus. And Brian Chapel once said, and I think it's beautiful, a woman, as a woman submits to her husband, she looks over his shoulder to see the Lord who is saying, you are ultimately not doing this for him, but for me. Your faithful obedience to Christ displays his glory as you joyfully submit to your own husband. And so wives, submit to your own husbands out of obedience to Christ. A second reason is to acknowledge God's order in creation. Verse 23 gives the reason why wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And it says, for the husband is head of the wife. Paul simply states it as fact. Just boom, there it is, right? This is not culturally conditional. This is not based upon some particular struggles of uneducated women in Ephesus. This is applying to all women everywhere. The husband is the head, the authority. Therefore, the wife is called to submit to him. And we know this because we see it elsewhere in Scripture. 
Now, where did Paul get this idea from? Is this just part of his patriarchal, woman-oppressing culture? No. It's a part of God's divine order, both in creation and in redemption. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul has a different audience there, and he says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So there you see some pretty important roles and distinctions, right? That even Christ submits to his Father, right? And just as God is the head of Christ, and Christ is the head of the church, and Christ is to be the head of your husband, your husband is to be the head of you. That's what he's saying there. Or elsewhere in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11-13. through 13. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, why? Why, Paul, would you say this? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Well, who who are Adam and Eve? What were they? Who were our first parents? Yeah, Adam and Eve were our first parents. That's right. Children's catechism is paying off. Yeah. As the Son of God was perfectly submissive to His heavenly Father in all things, and the church is to submit to Christ her head, so wives are also to submit to their divinely appointed heads, their husbands, according to the established order by God, both in creation and redemption. Let's just think back to Genesis 1, okay? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Start there. God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over, it's interesting, he says them, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So there you clearly see authority is being given. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them image of God is reflected both in the giving of authority, that that mankind has authority, and the image of God is reflected in the intimate community, the intimate relationship between a man and a woman. I mean, think about the Trinity for, for just a minute. In the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, all being equal, all having the same dignity, being God of very God. The one true God exists in three persons, and there is a distinguished authority, structure. There are differing roles. This is called the economic trinity, that the Son submits in everything to the Father, and the Holy Spirit submits in all things to both the Father and the Son. There is equality, There is unity, there is dignity, but there is submission. And so here we see, just in terms of the image of God, you have both the dignity of man and woman and their equality, and that together they reflect the image of God. But nevertheless, God chose to make Adam first. Why? I mean, if they're both image of God, both equal, both the same dignity, then why didn't God form both of them from the dust of the ground? Why did he breathe life into their nostrils both at the same time? Because God could have done that. 
right? Couldn't he not? Created the universe with the word of his power, but yet he can't create man and woman at the same time? I don't think so. Not only did he create Adam first, but he actually placed Adam in the garden. And he told Adam to tend it. And he gave Adam the law, his law. Basically, hey, be fruitful and multiply, and also don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest you die. And it was then Adam's job to communicate it to his wife. He was responsible to lead her to follow God in obedience. Of course, he fails to do that, does he not? Nevertheless, God created him first. God did that, and he established the fact that it was not good for man to be alone. As, as God sort of brings the animals before Adam, and he's naming them, right? There's not a helper suitable for him. He's lonely. He recognizes that in some ways, like, there's something missing, that he needs this, this suitable helper. And so God carries this out by causing a deep sleep to fall on him. And, and God creates, forms Eve from the body of Adam, from the side of Adam. Again, she's taken from his side as a symbol of her equality and dignity with Adam. As Matthew Henry so poetically puts it, Eve was not taken from Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. But she was created to be a helper for him. In the first wedding ceremony, there in Genesis chapter 2, we see Adam names Eve woman a symbol of his authority over her, just like he had named the animals. And man was charged to take the initiative in their relationship. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so in creation, you see dignity, you see equality, you see intimate unity between man and woman, that she is in no way inferior to him in any way, and you have headship and submission. Yes, they are totally equal, and yet he is to lead in love. And so what went wrong? Well, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, we see God's divinely appointed leadership structure being usurped. The serpent undermines God's authority structure by going not to the man, but to the woman. Kids, who tempted them to this sin? Satan tempted Eve And she gave the fruit to Adam. Though Adam had communicated God's command to Eve, and perhaps he even added to that for safe measure, because what she quotes to the serpent was more than what God had quoted to Adam. It's probably Adam just kind of going like, hey, don't even look at it. Don't touch it, lest you die. Right? He's just going overboard, right? Adding to God's law. Though that is the case, right? Um, Adam was there. But Adam failed to lead his wife. He failed to lead her in love. Adam should have stoned the snake, but he didn't. Eve should have submitted to her husband's leadership, but she didn't. Both of them failed to submit to God and sinned against him. They wanted to be like God rather than living in dependence upon him. And as a result of their fall into sin, death and sin entered the world. And now all of mankind has this inclination to rebel against God, to try to live our lives apart from him as if this is my world and I am God. 
and life was made hard. But when God came to address them, right, their, their eyes were open, they, they realized they were naked, they were shamed, they started fashioning clothes for themselves, and they hid behind the bushes trying to hide from God, right? What happens? Who does God go to? Does he go to Eve because she sinned first? Did he go to the serpent because the serpent had tempted Eve? No, he went to Adam. Why? Because Adam was to be the spiritual leader. Adam was the head. When God casts, like, pronounces judgment upon them, he starts with the lowest, the serpent, and then he goes to the wife, and then he goes to the head, man. And when he, in Genesis 3.16, when God said to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, he's saying, you will want to rule over your husband. You will want to take the lead. You will want to be the head. You will want to gain control. And he will rule over you by force. He will sinfully abuse his God-given authority over you. But that in no way removes or adds to the authority structure that God had already put in place. And we see it continue even after that, as Adam renames his wife Eve. And from that point on, through the rest of Scripture, Adam is considered the covenant head of mankind. Not Adam and Eve, but Adam is considered the head of the covenant head of mankind. And so Paul rightfully recognizes that despite the fall, despite all that has happened, all the sin that had entered into the world, God had appointed from creation that the husband is head of the wife. Now at this point, we are left with a choice. Are we going to look at this statement as an archaic, chauvinistic attempt to suppress women? Or will, we, or will we read it for what it is, the Word of God? Will we read this through the lens of our fallen Genesis 3.16 culture, or will we see it with the eyes of God? Will we, in our weakness, in, in our sin, just naturally submit ourselves over to those natural inclinations for wives to take charge over their husbands, and husbands falling into sin through passivity, or ruling with a heaven? heavy hand? Or will we, with the strength that God supplies each and every one of us, submit to God's word? Which is wiser? You know, I I heard Ligon Duncan say in a sermon from a few years ago, and then actually just a few weeks ago at the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood Conference down in Louisville, that in his 30 plus years of ministry, that he saw far more marriages broken because of a misunderstanding of or rejection of God's design for marriage than he did because of adultery. Far more prevalent. And as serious as adultery is, the rejection of or misunderstanding of God's design for marriage is far more prevalent in our society. Will we acknowledge and submit to God's design for marriage? Wives, will you trust God to lead your husband as he seeks to lead your family? And I do have to say this, though. The most godly husband cannot speak truth to a woman who is believing and clinging to lies. Are there lies in your heart that you're clinging to? 
The most loving husband cannot pursue a woman whose heart is closed to God and to her spouse. Are there areas of your heart that you are withholding or things that you are functionally loving more than Christ and more than your husband? And the best leader cannot lead a woman who is usurping and undermining his authority. Are you competing for or desiring the role as head? Wives, patiently, prayerfully, and respectfully trust Christ to lead him as he leads you. He's not going to do it perfectly. So wives, display the glories of Christ through faithful submission to their husbands. They, they do this first to obey Christ, and second, to acknowledge God's order and creation. And third, they do it to display the gospel. The godly wife is commanded to do the impossible. She is called to love like Jesus loved and submit like Jesus submitted. This indicates her need and dependency for Christ's presence in her life. She desperately needs to cling to him and not her husband or her expectations of her husband. But when she submits to her husband, not only does she reflect Christ's love and submission to this father to redeem his church, but she also displays the church's submission to its savior, Jesus Christ. So let's pick back up in verse 23. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit themselves in everything to their husbands. When wives faithfully submit to their husbands out of reverence for Christ, the gospel is put up on display. Through her obedience to Christ in her marriage, we see Christ's lordship and we see his perfect obedience to his heavenly father. She displays his love and his work of salvation being applied in her own heart. She demonstrates with her relationship to her husband that Jesus saves. Christ is the head of the church. He is her savior. And so, of course, the church is to submit to Christ in everything. Not in part, not in this or in this, but not this, in everything. Right? The church is to submit. Can we all agree on that? The church is to submit to Christ in everything. Right. Okay, thank you. He created her. He purchased her with his own blood. And so she twice belongs to her Savior Christ. And so intimately his that she, the church, is referred to both as his body and as his bride. He made her, he sustains her, he loves her, he pursues her, he redeems her, he sanctifies her, he glorifies her. That's what he does for his bride. Now your husband, unlike Christ, is not your savior. Though God has placed him as head of the home, and has given him the charge that we're going to look at next week. So husbands, don't think that you're off the hook by any stretch of the imagination. Because you are called to love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Good luck with that, guys. I'll be praying for you. You pray for me. Um, Though he's been charged to aid in her sanctification, he is not your Savior. Christ is. Do not look to your husband for that. Your husband is a sinner in need of a Savior. Don't look to him as your functional Christ. Don't put your sanctification, your growth in Christ, squarely on his shoulders. He is not Jesus. You are not saved based upon the godliness of your husband. You're saved based upon the righteousness of Christ. And yet he's been given this impossible charge to lead as Christ led. And you have the equally difficult task of submitting to him in everything. Just as the church is to submit to Christ in everything. That is a weighty, weighty phrase. In everything. I was talking to Ken this week. Just like, hey, Ken, what do I do with this? He said, I'll be praying for you. <laughs> Thanks, kid. <laughs> but this is heavy. I mean, how do you, how do you even handle this? How do, you, how do you handle this without looking at this text through the lens of our culture or even through our, our lens of Americanized Christianity? And how do you look at it faithfully, biblically, the way that Christ views this passage? Well, that's, that's real hard to kind of fit in the middle. And I can't possibly unpack this in, in every detail as far as how this looks. And we're not, we're not doing situational ethics here, okay? So these are just general applications, general principles that I can give of this statement in everything. And so let me first say this to the husbands. Husband, this does not mean that you make all the decisions. This doesn't mean that you can ramrod or be insensitive to her, or fail to listen to her perspective, or seek to please her. This doesn't mean that you can make her sin against the Lord. This does mean that the buck stops with you. But you would better seek to live with her in an understanding way, for the good of the marriage, for the good of your own soul, because you will give an account for the way that you led. Now to the wives. When God says that you should submit in everything to your own husband, he's meaning that to be comprehensive and unconditional. Okay, now here's what I mean by that. It means that Everything means everything except sin. It means not looking for the loopholes to try to get around this passage. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, what about this? Well, can I, can I, obey, can I submit to him in this way, but not in this way over here? Can I, can I just do this? Or how can I just kind of navigate around this statement in everything to avoid it? That's not what he means. Lawyers? <laughs> looking at you. God is seeking out your heart here, right? He's, he's pursuing your heart in this statement in everything. 
is your disposition your, to follow your husband's authority? Is your inclination to yield to his leadership? And that's what I mean when I say comprehensive. Furthermore, that statement in everything is not conditional. What that means is saying to yourself, I'll submit in this area or in that area, but not this one. Or it doesn't mean that your submission is conditioned upon him meeting your expectations. This is big, right? Well, I'll submit to him when he leads. And what you mean by that is the way when he leads in the way that I want him to lead, right? That's what you mean. When he does this, or when he does this, or when he does this, or when he treats me like this, then I will submit, but until then, I won't submit, right? But I just want to remind you of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. You are called to submit even if your husband disobeys the word, and he will. Now, if he's not asking you to sin, then you are called to follow his lead, and it takes a lot of wisdom in knowing how to do that. And you will both need help with that. You will need to depend upon Christ. You will need the Holy Spirit to be at work in your heart. You will need to know the truth of God's word, to know how to be able to wisely apply the truth of God's word to this situation and circumstance. And you will need the church to do that faithfully. But in your heart... Are you truly willing to follow your husband's lead? And can others see your desire to display the gospel in the way that you submit to your husband? Now, perhaps it's better for me, according to Titus 2, 3 through 5, to quote from a godly older woman on this issue because older women are meant to train the younger women to love and submit to their husbands. Okay? So hear this from Susan Hunt. The true woman is not afraid to place herself in a position of submission. She does not have to grasp. She does not have to control. Her fear dissolves in light of God's covenant promise to be her God and to live within her. Submission is simply a demonstration of her confidence in the sovereign power of the Lord God. Submission is a reflection of her redemption. Wives, I hope that you can consider it a joy and not a burden to be able to display the gospel in your marriage as you faithfully submit to your own husband. And friends, I will say this, and just over the next th this sermon and then two more after this, we're dealing with an issue that's far bigger than ourselves. There's more at stake in your marriage as a Christian than just your happiness in this life. God's glory is on the line in your marriage. God's glory is on the line in your manifesting and your showing and your expressing this analogy between Christ and the church. And so wives, display the glories of Christ as you faithfully submit to your husbands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it, uh, 
it's always overwhelming to think about the fact that you care about each and every aspect of our lives, that you have ordered and you have instructed and you have purposed all things for your glory and for our good. And so, Lord, I I pray that in a, a deep sense of dependence upon Christ, you would help us to take off those blinders, uh, those me-centered lenses of our culture to be able to view this passage in light of the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would consider it a joy and a delight to be able to reflect the nature of his submission to you because it's through that that we have redemption. I pray that it would be our earnest desire to obey you in all things, to reflect your character, your nature, your promises and purposes in every aspect of our lives. Lord, I pray that we would have that desire to display the gospel and the hope and the transformation and the joy and the glory that is found in the sacrifice and the resurrection of Christ on our behalf. May the the world be able to look upon us and see a stark difference in reality. May they be able to look upon our marriages and see hope. Lord, we need you to do this. So help us. It's in Christ's name we pray.